Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. The government is charging ahead with plans to crack down on gangs, banning the wearing of gang patches in public. Legislation to be introduced this week will also give police powers to break up gang gatherings and allow the courts to stop gang members associating. Labour's police spokesperson Jenny Anderson says the laws will put pressure on the police workforce. I'm concerned about the impact on increased assaults to the front line. It's really hard for police uh, to consistently uh, enforce this law right across New Zealand. That will be a challenge. Now, earlier I spoke to the Justice Minister, Paul Goldsmith. I began by asking him if he is confident the new bill will be compliant with the Bill of Rights. As with all new legislation that comes in, there will be a a report from the Attorney-General on that issue. Uh, We haven't seen that yet. Uh, and look, there may be questions raised, but we believe that we've got the balance right. So the question then is, would you persevere even if it is in bill of, breach of the Bill of Rights, which Parliament can do? Uh, yeah, look, we'll, we'll come to that when we get to it. Uh, certainly we're conscious of the fact that there is a, you know, there's been a 30% increase in gang membership. We've got real issues in this country. We want to restore law and order, and so this is about giving the police extra tools to deal with gangs. It is going to be in breach of the Bill of Rights, isn't it? We know that with the Whanganui uh, case, it was found to be inconsistent. Looking at the Bill of Rights, everyone has the right to freedom of expression, including the freedom to seek, receive and impart information and opinions of any kind. Banning sure, patches sure. is going to breach that, isn't it? Well, yeah, but sure, but people have also got the right to be able to live peacefully in a society without being intimidated and harassed. Uh, and so uh, there's always a balance. Uh, and uh, we'll work our way through the human rights implications. But, of course, we campaigned on uh, bringing in these uh, policies. Uh, We've been elected. uh, The Cabinet's made the decisions. We've prepared the legislation, and we're going to do what we said we're going to do. Sure, no, I appreciate that. I just want to be clear that that if you were to be found to be, if the bill was found to be in breach of the Bill of Rights, that's not going to stop you? Uh, No, it wouldn't stop us. Does that then raise some concerns about a sort of a thin end of the wedge here, that while you, as you argue, there are people have a right to safety and the gangs are a problem, so n- not many people like gangs. But, of course, if you breach, breach it in this case, who's to stop a future government breaching it with some other group that they don't like that may be more sinister? Well, of course, uh, uh, and Parliament is accountable to the people. And, of course, we, you know, so we have to make these judgments as to balance uh, the rights of law-abiding citizens to go about without being intimidated uh, versus the uh, rights of the self-expression of gang members. Uh, we make a judgment. Uh, Parliament is, uh, has the ability to do that. And then we're accountable, ultimately, at the ballot box. If people don't agree with us, uh, they'll throw us out. But we're, certainly the strong message we got during the campaign, number one issue was... Uh, cost of living. Number two was law and order. And so uh, people want to feel safer in their communities. And given the police the extra powers they need to deal with a, 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 a gang situation which has been getting considerably worse over the past few years is what we've uh, been determined to do. How specific will you be in the legislation as to describing what is a gang, what constitutes a patch? Will there be specific gangs mentioned in the legislation? How do you define yes. what a patch is? Yes, well, of course, we're building on existing legislation where uh, gang patches have been banned in, in hospitals and schools, and uh, that legislation has an appendix with a list of uh, 40 gangs, and so that, that'll that be uh, carried over to this legislation, which is extending it to all public places. 
Uh, and uh, and so the definitions will be in the legislation and they work effectively. Does it include tattoos? Uh, no, we're not including tattoos at uh, in the first instance. Um, uh, so we're just dealing with patches. So a gang member who is in public with, and some do by all accounts, have you know black power or, or mongrel mob, whatever, um, tattooed on their back, uh, they will not be in breach of the new law. No, we haven't started with tattoos. And look, look, we'll take stock if uh, if we find in a few years that that is a problem. Well, we can take the extra step. But our our first step was to start with gang patches. The uh, issue of the internet is this going to cover anything of people posting pictures of themselves and patches on the internet? Uh, no, we haven't include social media either, uh, simply because it, it again that complicates it uh, substantially. We're starting off with. Uh, just the straight intimidation of uh, large numbers of uh, gang patches in the community, uh, and uh, we're going to outlaw that. But the other elements, of course, are the dispersal orders, which gives the police the ability to uh, uh, to uh, tell a, a, a large gang group uh, to disperse, uh, and they have to do that within seven days. If they don't, they can be arrested and fined and even imprisoned. So uh, it's about just giving extra tools, as I say, uh, to the police to be able to do their job. Again, that, that's likely to be in breach of the Bill of Rights, isn't it? The freedom of peaceful assembly. I mean, how do you, what are the provisions around the use of that new law? Because that's potentially quite powerful. How many people would constitute a gathering? Do, whereabouts? I mean, what sort of parameters are on that? Three, three or more. Uh, and uh, um, it's if, if the police have reasonable cause to believe that they'll be um, um, uh, interfering with the, the lawful activities of the rest of the community. Uh, and all these laws, of course, are based on uh, the Australian legislation uh, that we've had in other states. I actually was just in Melbourne meeting uh, with all the, uh, the, the federal and uh, state ministers in Australia. Uh, funnily enough, they're all uh, Labour ministers. And this is basic stuff over there because, you know, they realise that we have to have um, what, what we've seen is an escalation of the intimidation and impact of gangs in the community in the last few years. And there needs to be a legislative response. Mm. And that's what we're going to do. Just on that dispersal notice, does that have to be for a registered gang or because the worry might yes. be that the police yes. would use that law for other purposes, which. No, 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 it's a, no it has to be gangs listed in the legislation. So, and does it say how many people at any time? Uh, uh, three or more. Three or more people congregating some... So three gang members walking down the street, the police would have the ability to issue them with a dispersal notice? Yes, if, if, if they... If, you know, there's a hurdle there that they have to demonstrate that they're concerned that they will be, uh, you know, intimidating and uh, creating a, a situation where people law-abiding citizens didn't feel safe uh, and were being impeded in there going about their normal lives. I guess the big criticism that has come through over the last 24 hours is that this is an unenforceable law, that the police don't have the resources to do this and it is nothing more than a gimmick. Is this law, can you give me an answer to this, is this law designed to reduce criminal activity by gangs or simply to make the public feel safer? Uh, well, it's uh, designed to do both. And, of course, you know, we'll have academics and, and reformed gang members saying it's all too hard, it's impossible, it can't be done. Well, it's done in other countries and it can be done and it will be done. Uh, ultimately, uh, like I say, uh, I mean, people can mock uh, the concerns of the public around uh, law and order and safety. 
but that is it's a real concern for many people. And you know, anybody who lived in Opotiki and saw the town taken over for days uh, by large numbers of gang members uh, wants to see who who actually is in charge. Mm. Uh, it has to be uh, the police and well, the law abiding. You may have seen the Sunday story on TV One last night, but it was they were obviously reporting uh, police officers passed in presents, suggesting they simply yep. didn't have the resources to to enforce it. Well, and of course, and the government will be giving five. We'll be arranging for five hundred extra police. We will have the resources. Ultimately, uh, we back the police to do the job, and we're giving them extra tools to make them, uh, you know, to, to, to make them or to, to enable them to do the job effectively. And so it's a, it, it's about legislation, and it's also about uh, giving them the resources that they need. And that is the Justice Minister Paul Goldsmith. Well, listening to that was the Police Commissioner, Andrew Costa, who joins us now. Kia ora, good morning, Commissioner. Good morning, Ingrid. In a practical sense, can police enforce these laws? Uh, how are your officers expected to approach, for example, uh, a group of patched gang members? Look, this is another tool in our toolkit to police gangs, and it's always been the case in policing that judgment is needed about how to use the tools and legislation available to us. Uh, officers may decide to intervene at the time or they may decide to execute a search warrant on those gang members later. But either way, we will use this tool to good effect. How often are you expecting them to use the tool? I think it will be used quite a lot in the early stages, but uh, I fully expect that uh, gangs will come to learn the consequences of not following this law and we'll see it uh, drop off in time. Even when cops are outnumbered in some of those smaller towns we've been hearing about, a Portuguese, for example, where they may only have two officers facing uh, 25 gang members? Yeah, look, a Portuguese is a really tough gig. There's no doubt about it and we need to mobilise more support there and we have the means to do that. So in places where uh, gangs are flouting this provision, we will simply roll more staff in uh, to support the locals and um, you can expect to see that play out in the early stages of this. Sorry, I, I didn't catch that. When can a Portuguese expect more police officers or a full cohort of officers there? Oh, look, I'm referring to the rollout of this legislation and providing the support needed. Uh, there are a range of challenges in a Portuguese that we're working through, not the least of which has been recruiting into that town. Uh, and we've got options there that we're considering, including uh, providing out-of-town staff to continue to support um, their operation there. So you st- it's still patching up um, coverage at a Portuguese, is it, in, in similar towns? Because this is, the, this is the, uh, the argument, isn't it, that police resources are at a premium. Um, are these measures the best use of those scant resources in some of those towns where gang issues are a big problem? The government's been very clear about its priority on gangs, and we will support that priority. In the end, gangs are responsible for a huge amount of the crime that occurs in our communities and uh, a larger part of the fear that exists of crime because of the way they intimidate the Mm. public. Are these tools the issue? Are they what's needed or is it simply that you need more resources? Look, there's no one solution to this problem and including uh, policing not being the only solution but Uh, For policing, these tools will make a difference, as will the additional resource that we expect to receive over the coming years. Do you think these changes will reduce the number of people joining gangs? Will they reduce crime? One of the things that uh, gangs trade on is their reputation, and and that's represented in the patches that they wear. 
Uh, they use that as a cover for crime, as an enabler of violence and uh, dealing of drugs into our communities. And it's the appearance of that that tends to attract young people. So uh, I believe it's entirely probable that um, addressing the visible appearance of gangs will ease those problems. Are you worried about assaults on frontline police? You've talked about issues with with, uh, recruiting. This is going to make a dangerous job more dangerous. It's our job to be there to do this work. Nobody else is going to do it. And we have invested a lot in the last little while in the safety of our staff. Uh, We have much greater capability available out there on the front line now uh, and we will use that as required to get on top of this issue. Did you see the Sunday programme last night when police officers were talking about feeling unsafe in that situation in the small town under-resourced police stations around the country? I I didn't see the programme but I'm aware of of what it covered and look policing in small towns has always been challenging and is a um, delicate balance in terms of those staff exercising the right judgments to keep themselves safe Um, We don't always need to win in the moment, but we will win in the end. And we need to make sure that we provide the support required for those small towns to achieve that. Okay, and just actually about the uh, non-consorting orders, how would police uh, make sure that these gang members uh, weren't in contact, you know, via WhatsApp or other means of of communication for the the three odd years and um, that some of these laws are looking at? Yeah, look, obviously uh, we can't be on every single platform. Um, the key issue that that consorting order is aimed at is um, gang members coming together in a way that causes uh, fear and intimidation. Uh, but it also is a tool that we can use to uh, prosecute where gang members are, are consorting for other purposes. Um, and we will do that as in we were able. When could we expect to walk down a street in one of those uh, towns? We're using a Portuguese as an example, but of course there are many others. How long until we can walk down the street in those places and not see any uh, any gang patches? This legislation is only now being introduced to Parliament. It will need to go through a select committee process uh, and then at a point in, in the coming months uh, it will pass into law. So at that point you can expect to see police mobilising Uh, and obviously there are a range of unknowns here, but we'll be very focused on um, getting this implemented well. Just finally, how many officers are you losing to Australia at the moment? Um, We have lost, to our knowledge, about 50, uh, and we know that based on those for whom we've had professional conduct checked who have since left police. Uh, At the moment, that issue is not by itself causing us significant concern about um, our ability to build police numbers. Thank you for your time this morning. That was the Police Commissioner Andrew Costa. You're listening to Morning Report on RNZ National. Uh, no traffic to update you with at this point of the morning. We shall do so if it comes through. Now, the sentencing of companies for their health and safety failures in the lead-up to the deadly Fakari White Island eruption starts today in Auckland. Six parties will be sentenced, including the company that granted access to the volcanic island, following a criminal trial in 2019, into the 2019 disaster, which killed 22 people and injured 25 others. The sentencing is being held at the Environment Court for the next two weeks. Our reporter, Lucy Shear, will be covering the sentencing and joins us now. Uh, Kia ora, good morning, Lucy. Kia ora, Corin. Now, what can we expect today? Two weeks, long time. 
Yeah. Um, well, Corin, it will certainly be a very difficult day in court for many. Um, survivors and victims of the disaster will be giving their impact statements on how the disaster has affected their lives and their ability to earn a living. Um, so we're expecting to hear from survivors who gave evidence during the trial, and this was mostly uh, via video link, as most of the tourists on the island at the time of the disaster were from overseas. So people may remember the, the extraordinary um, survival story of the Australian man, Jesse Lamford, who um, was the sole survivor in his family. He lost his parents and his sister, who all didn't make it off the island alive at the time. He was just 19 at that time with a bright future ahead of him. So um, we're expecting to hear how, how his life has changed as a result of this disaster. And also the American couple, Matthew and Lauren Urie, who were on honeymoon and were badly burned. We heard at the trial that both are still recovering from their burns. Uh, Lauren Urie said that she faced surgeries about once every month since the eruption, and the pair has been forced to uh, delay starting a family of their own. So compensation, this will be addressed. What will there be for survivors? The court will consider what reparation is available to the survivors, but at a previous hearing, Judge Evangelos Thomas said that there won't be enough money to properly compensate them. So we're expecting to hear more about available funds for reparation in court today. Now, take us through who is actually facing sentencing and what are the, the penalties they could face? So this was a very extensive investigation. Um, in 2020, WorkSafe charged 13 parties for safety failings that put tourists and workers at undue risk on the island. That went to trial last year, ended in September, and six parties had their charges dismissed, and that includes the island's three owners who were charged as individuals. Uh, another six parties um, were, f- uh, were found guilty, one of which has been uh, sorry, pleaded guilty, one of which has been sentenced. And Fakari Management, the company that granted access to the volcanic island, which is owned by the Buttle brothers, Andrew, James and Peter Buttle, was found guilty at the trial and is among those being sentenced. Also being sentenced are White Island Tours on two charges and the three helicopter companies, and that's Volcanic Air Safaris, Arius and Kahu, each on two charges. And we know that the Crown uh, Research Institute, GNS, had pleaded guilty to one charge before the trial began, and they'll also be sentenced um, separately on Thursday because Judge Thomas said that the issues relating to GNS are separate from those relating to the other defendants. So GNS failed to consult with the helicopter pilots about the risks of flying scientists to the island and they're facing a maximum fine of half a million dollars. Um, and when we're looking at the penalties, um, so they range and um, it will be up to a maximum of $1.5 million um, for, for those such as Ficardi Management. Lucy, thank you very much for that update. That's Lucy Shia there, who will be covering the uh, sentencing uh, of the around the Fakadi White Island eruption that is uh, starting in Auckland today. Runs for two weeks.
Well, the motorsport community is in shock and grieving after two competitors died during a road rally sprint race yesterday afternoon in Northland. The driver and the co-driver were in a single car when their vehicle veered off the track during the Acadia Road race near Kaipara. Several investigations into the double fatality are underway. The Chief Executive of Motorsport New Zealand, Elton Goonan, uh, joins me now for more on this. Kia ora, good morning, Elton. Obviously, a terrible tragedy for the friends and family of those who lost their lives and for the motorsport community, which I imagine is probably a, a, a close-knit community. Yeah, good morning, Ingrid. Yes, yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's quite, a, quite, a, um, quite a close community up here. And, yeah, our thoughts and condolences go to the, to the families and the friends, and, um, but also to the, the organising club and the volunteers who, um, who, who tried to... Tried to um, save them and, and get the get the vehicle out. Can you tell us about the actual event itself and what looks to have gone so horribly wrong here? Um, at the moment, we're, we're still trying to compile all the details. Um, so um, I, I didn't get into the, the Auckland region until 9 o'clock last night, so I haven't haven't been to the scene yet. But as I kind of know as much as, as most people at the moment, that the, the car veered off into... Off the road into into a ditch, and um, that's that's as much as I know at the moment. So, an investigation or several investigations are underway. Is it uh, is there any suggestion that rules could be changed or how this race is operated could be changed to, you know, to deal with safety concerns? Um, at the moment, this must be a little bit too too soon to make that make that sort of call. But I mean, our, our rules uh, we we set in, in alignment with our international governing body, and, and they've been in place for nearly nearly seventy five years now. So, um, so it's something we we definitely don't want to don't want a knee jerk reaction on. But it's it's something that we that will we definitely be looked at very very closely, both with our investigation, but also the outcome of, of the police and and the others that are happening as well. And in the meantime, what sort of support is Motorsport New Zealand able to offer to those involved? Yeah, we've got we've got a counselling service available to to both the competitors, uh, both the families, the competitors who are also at the event, and the volunteers. So that's that's been um, communicate being communicated out to everybody today, and um, and the the team at Motorsport New Zealand are, are also on hand to to help everybody as much as they can through this process. Appreciate your time this morning. That was uh, Chief Executive of Motorsport New Zealand, Elton Goonan. Uh, several investigations are underway into a double fatality that occurred during a road rally sprint race yesterday afternoon in Northland. The driver and co-driver in a single car were killed in that accident. Well, most students who failed crucial new NCEA tests on their first attempt last year failed again on their second try. Principals say they'll be more careful about ensuring students sit the, sitting the reading, writing and maths tests only when they are ready. But some say the online tests are inherently unfair for teenagers from poor backgrounds and they don't want to use them. Our education correspondent John Gerritsen reports. All up, the pass rates across the tests offered in June and again in October and November last year were pretty good, 62 to 68%. But figures provided to RNZ show 15,500 students had two goes and most of them failed both times. Of those students, barely a quarter from poor communities passed the maths and reading tests. 
Ragni Maxwell from Porirua College says some students simply struggle with online tests. Where the method of assessment becomes a barrier in and of itself, repeating that experience is not going to change the nature of the barrier. So for students for whom an online test is not a valid way to assess genuine literacy skills that they have because the online test is a problem, doing it more often won't make a difference to that. She says some of her students sat the tests last year and many failed even though their teachers judged they were ready. That matters because from this year, students can't get an NCEA qualification until they pass the tests or complete specific NCEA standards instead. That second option is available for only two years, though the government is considering whether to keep it longer. Ragni Maxwell wants both. An online test is a cheap, effective way of assessing a whole lot of people at once, but it is not necessarily the way that gets out a genuine level of a student's skills. And there have to be alternative methods for students who have the literacy but do not have the ability to perform in an online test one-off situation. The lower pass rates for Māori and Pacific students and those facing high socioeconomic barriers are a red flag for Kiri Teketo, who's the principal of Sir Edmund Hillary Collegiate. She says her school will try the online exams but will also use the alternative NCEA standards. I'd like to try both because we haven't tried it yet, so we're not too sure what's going to work for our students. And I suspect, given how the majority of students feel about sitting physical exams, I'm not too sure how our students will go. They could go great or they could take a nosedive. She's not sure her school has the IT infrastructure to offer the online tests, and if the school does use them, it won't be rushing students through at Year 10. There is no need to actually test our kids at a younger stage. And I think the reason why some schools may be doing it is to just get it over and done with, whereas I'm like, assess when ready. Fawn Quio from the Secondary Principals Association says there are a couple of possible reasons why students are failing the tests even on their second go. So it would indicate on the surface of it that if they've had another crack at it, either missing out the first time has been incredibly demotivating uh, and hasn't helped them in their learning journey, or that teaching and learning hasn't occurred, or a combination of the two of those things. Because this is now a significantly high-stakes situation. He says schools will be more careful about deciding which students sit the tests. Well, the first athletes for the New Zealand team to compete at this year's Paris Olympics have been named. They will compete in the speed climbing event, and for the first time, two speed climbers have been selected. Sarah Tetzlaff and Julian David will represent the country, along with 200 other athletes at the Games which will be in Paris this July. 19-year-old Julian David is the current junior world champion for speed climbing and won the Emerging, uh, Emerging Talent Award at this year's Halberg Awards. He joins us now. Congratulations. Good morning, Julian. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This must be an absolute thrill. Uh, how are you feeling about this? Uh, are you feeling like you're, you're ready? Oh, I mean, of course. I mean, it's just super exciting, the fact that, you know, me and Sarah are the first ones to be doing this. And like you said, I'm only 19, so it's a... Great, like a wild opportunity, as you mentioned. All right, talk us through for people who aren't familiar with speed climbing a little bit how this works. Uh, it's it's over in a flash, isn't it? How does the competition work? Yeah, right. So most competitions, uh, it will be just a knockout race uh, when you hit finals. So in a competition, there will be two qualification runs, and you race up a fifteen meter wall. 
the fastest top 16 times move through the finals and it's knockout from there, so the winner will move on to the next round. How long does it take you to do that? About seven seconds or something? Uh, 5.8. <laughs> so what do you think, that's, is that your best, is it? What do you think will be a winning time at the Olympics? Uh, I mean, with speed climbing, it's impossible to tell because as soon as you go under that, that six-second barrier, the margin for error becomes much smaller. Um, so anything faster than 5.4 would can get you into the winning spot, I think. And because of the knockout nature and because of the Olympics, and the, does it have some variables there that you think you're in with a shot here of a podium? Um, I mean, never say never, right? There's always the opportunity. Um, obviously, I'll be gunning for that, but yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I mean, well, you sort of were, you, you weren't necessarily the favourite at the juniors, were you? So you, you, you must be making big strides. Yeah, I think the biggest thing in competitions like that is not who's fastest on paper, it's who's mentally strongest and best on the day. So I guess it all comes down to what will happen on the day. So do you compete, do you just do it one at a time or do you have someone next to you going at the same time? You'll have somebody at the same time next to you, but in the qualification rounds it doesn't doesn't matter who wins that. Obviously you want to win because you'll get the quicker time, but it's not like essential to win that. No, I'm just curious. So, so do you have a bit of you know? Is the other person sort of eyeballing you, psyching you out? Is, is there a bit of that going on? There, there is some strategies that people will pull, but if you're mentally strong enough, like some people tried it on me actually in the final rounds, but I was uh, I was pretty locked in, so it didn't affect me. But other people it might have thrown them off a bit. Yeah. Now the who are the countries that are strong at this? I mean, it's it's nice to see New Zealand coming through on this. Uh, mm. Relatively new sport. We do have mountains, obviously. There's a there's a connection yeah. there. But is it are there just some countries that are into this? It's, it could be an indoor sport as well, right? Yeah, definitely. So most countries will have indoor walls. Um, all the competitions are outdoors. But the strongest countries be actually Indonesia. Surprisingly, they are incredible at this. Indonesia and China, yeah. Is that right? Is that and have they got a, a history of that, or they've just uh, just enjoy it? Do they? Oh, they, yeah. They just kind of exploded onto the scene. I guess like they're average building just must be so perfect for speed and they're just incredible at it now yeah yeah that's the thing so so in terms of the physique you, mm. do you have to sort of have a weight power balance there is that something you can work on or, or is there a little bit of genetics involved there yeah so i think it's a bit of genetics but then for, for some reason everybody thinks you've got to be like tall you know like everybody thinks tall's an advantage but actually i'm only five nine and i'm actually kind of tall for a speed climber like these indonesian guys are half a head shorter buffer than me and just absolutely power units. And how do you, is the course always the same, or does it change? How do you know to pick, do you, do you, when you're sort of standing at the bottom, have you already mapped out your exact route and where your hands and feet are going to go? Yeah, so it's actually a standardised route. So it's like the 100 metre sprints, but vertical and only 15 metres. So it's all the same, standardised all across the world. So you can, you can practice that. You, you must know that in your sleep. Yeah, so it's pretty off by heart, yeah, like you visualise that thing and you, like before the competition I'm just, you know, eyes closed, music on, visualising doing the route. Fantastic. Hey look, putting all that aside, you just must be absolutely stoked going to the Olympics. Yeah, I mean it's a pretty surreal feeling, it's something that I remember wanting to do ever since I was like a young seven year old lad back in 2012 watching the London Olympics, I knew I wanted to go so getting that selection means a lot. Well, congratulations. Go well. Uh, it's an, an amazing achievement. We look forward to watching you in action. Well done. Yeah, thank uh, you, mate. I appreciate it. Nice one. That is 19-year-old Julian David, who is the current junior world champion for speed climbing. He's going to the Olympics along with Sarah Tetzlaff in speed climbing. Fascinating sounding sport. Um, Have you tried to do it with the kids? You know, going <laughs> well, to those clip and climb places? Oh, with the harness. Yeah, that's yes. quite fun. Yeah. Well, you can't fail. You just fall and it well, gently drops you to the bottom. Believe me, you can fail. <laughs>
<laughs> it's been cool. There, no, I mean, it's amazing that, that um, you know, you can just hear the enthusiasm there. And, uh, yeah, no, you never know. It's an interesting sport. Yeah, good stuff. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 